Hey everybody, it's Pastor Chris. We normally film on Thursdays and I woke up like most of you on Friday to the news that President Trump had tested positive for COVID. If 2020 wasn't surreal enough, man, this just added to it. Well, right before this series, we did a series called Politics 2020. And as we explored what the Bible had to say about that important topic, we came across this passage and we spent some time with it. The passage is this, it's out of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4. through 4. It says, I urge you, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for those in authority, that, um, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all good godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, I know that people have strong feelings about President Trump, both for and against, but there's not an asterisk here that says only pray for those leaders that you agree with or feel great about. So what we're going to do is we're going to hit pause and we're going to pray. Now, again, we're taping this one on Friday. We don't know what's going to happen between now and then. I uh, just took a look at my phone here and uh, it says that um, as of Friday, he's energetic, will carry out his duties. You know, we don't know. But regardless of the case, for us to pause and to pray for our leaders is a good thing. So let's just take a moment to do that now before we start our service. Please pray with me. Father, we're thankful that you call us to pray, and we're thankful that you even teach us how to pray. That you say, let's pray, uh, you instruct us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as we pray for President Trump, as we pray for his family, and as we pray for all of our leaders, Father, we pray that your good and perfect will is going to be done, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning again. All right, how many of you watched the debates? Or at least part of it? Oh, man. If you needed a reminder to be praying for this election, uh, we certainly got one of those on Tuesday night, didn't we? I can't think of a better reminder uh, to pray. Well, among other things, the fact checkers were going crazy during the debate and after the debate. It reminds me of an article that I saw many years ago. Some of you might remember uh, this article that I, uh, I showed you. It's about the former supreme leader of North Korea. And I'm going to share this before and some might remember this. Here's the article or, or the piece from the article. After picking up a golf club for the very first time in his life, the supreme leader of North Korea fired a 38 under par round of 34 at the grand opening of North Korea's only 18-hole golf course. At least that's according to the 17 security guards who observed the performance. All right, I, I'm not a golf guy. I'll definitely uh, confess that, but I know enough to know that shooting a 34 on an 18-hole golf course, that's a pretty impressive debut for a rookie. With a show of hands, how many of you are at least a little bit skeptical about those claims? All right, uh, Sam, you got, all right. Now, now every hand is up in this room. Every hand is up in this room. Yeah, yeah fake news, fake news. It, it, it's not just a recent thing. Fake news has been a worldwide phenomena since the beginning of time. You know, and sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes a story like this, it's just like, just funny. But if you're talking about the truth regarding COVID, then truth matters. If you're talking about presidential elections, then the truth matters. When there's a lot on the line, truth matters. And it matters a lot. At Emmanuel, we look to the Bible 
as our capital S source of truth. And if you're just joining us, we're right now in the middle of a teaching series where we're exploring this remarkable book. Three weeks ago, we saw that the Bible has impacted our world like no other book in history. Two weeks ago, we saw that the ancient documents that are in here are the ones that were set apart as sacred. If you start adding documents to this collection, if you start taking pieces out of this collection, then what you're doing is you're creating your own build-a-bear religion. You are no longer practicing Orthodox Christianity. All right, so that was the first two weeks. Last week, we put the spotlight on the word gospel. It's a word that means good news. These authors from these books, uh, from different cultures and different backgrounds and different continents, they all testify to the good news. The good news of a good God who created the heavens and the earth and they were good. Who filled the land and the seas with life and it was good. Who created man in his own image and it was good. One of the many things that sets the Bible's creation account, apart from all the others that I know of, is the fact that the Bible's creation account, it is filled with good, 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 good. In fact, the Bible's first not good, we've mentioned this before, it comes from Genesis 2, 18. The first not good that you find in the entire Bible is that it was not good for man to be alone. So God created a second human. And the scripture says that was very good. At least it was good until the man and the woman turned against God and they turned against one another. And, God, and the husband was turned against wife and brother turned against brother and nation turned against nation. Author after author after author in the biblical canon give account after account after account of a God who is gracious and kind, a God who is faithful and just, a God who is patient and forgiving. He is a good father who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The word that was with God from the beginning, the word that was God, became flesh and dwelt among us, revealing to us the fullness of God in bodily form. According to the word, on Good Friday, he paid the price for our sins on a Roman cross. And on the third day, he rose from a borrowed grave, defeating the power of sin and death. He ascended into heaven with a promise to return. And when he does, all will be as it should be. As we await that day, he's given us his spirit. He's given us his written word to remind us that he can work all things for good. He can work your greatest mistakes for good. He can work those horrible things that have happened to you for good. He can work all things for good if you put your trust in him. That's the good news. And that brings us to the question that we're going to wrestle with today in this series. And here's the question. If you're taking notes, there's a place to write this down. How do we know that the good news isn't too good to be true? Here's a claim that we looked at a couple weeks ago. If you have your Bible with you, please open with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were 
eyewitnesses to his majesty. All right, the Bible claims to contain a number of eyewitness accounts. And in the ancient world, word of mouth testimony from an eyewitness, from a reliable source, that was considered far more valuable than writing. Why? Because they used to say this. They used to say, you can't look a letter in the eye. I think that's really good. It's much harder to assess the credibility of a letter than it is a person who you know and who you trust. All right, so many of the Bible's authors, they were eyewitnesses themselves. And then there were others like Luke who did their fact checking and then said, these facts check out. And they testified to things, to, to a God who parted the Red Sea. They testify to a God who used a shepherd boy to bring down a giant. All right, but, but how can we trust that these 30 plus authors who made up the books in our Bible, how do we know that they're not like the 17 members of Kim Jong-il's security team? Why should we trust the good news? That there's a God who knows you, who sees you, who cares about you. And he can part the seas and he can bring down the giants in your life. Well, if you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. Okay, how do we know? How do we determine, I should say, how do we determine if credible testimony was accurately preserved? And the reason I ask that question is because that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? It comes down to those two things. One, were the witnesses credible? And two, is what, was what they said accurately passed down? How do you determine that? Well, what you do is you put the Bible through the same tests that you would use for other ancient documents. And we included four of these tests in your notes. Credible testimony comes from credible witnesses. It comes from multiple witnesses. It provides a historical context and was gathered soon after the event. All right, let's focus on the New Testament because the New Testament validates the Old Testament. If you put the New Testament through the same tests that you use to determine the credibility of other ancient documents, you're going to see for yourself, the Bible isn't just best in class. The Bible's in a class all by itself. With the Bible, you have an incredibly diverse group of authors who were brought together by a man named Jesus. And all of them, in the New Testament anyway, all of them became convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. None of those authors were raised in a Christian home. And yet, all of these credible, independent witnesses, they went all in on Jesus in an era when it was highly costly to do so. And if their testimony is not enough, <laughs> I, love, uh, I love referring to, to, to this. Um, I found this in a book called You Don't Have Enough Faith, or I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Um, listen to this. Now, these are all facts that are about Jesus' life that are confirmed in non-Christian sources. Take a look at this. So again, all of these can be found outside the Bible, sometimes by people who are hostile to the Christian faith. All these facts, check out. Here we go. Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He lived a virtuous life. He was a wonder worker. He had a brother named James. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. Darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died. His disciples believed he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for the belief. Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. His disciples denied the Roman gods and worshiped Jesus as God. Oh man, facts like these 
you guys, they're easy to find. Um, in fact, you can go to a resource page that we've created for you, emmanuel.church slash the word. And if you go down to the bottom, you're going to find some study Bibles we recommend where you can find facts like these. One of the reasons, or one of the things I should say, that you'll find in resources like the ones I've been talking about here is that a strong argument can be made that every single document in the New Testament can be dated within 100 years of Jesus' life, the time that these things were said to have happened. As a reference point, because a lot of times people don't recognize um, how thin the evidence is for so many things that we consider history. Um, as a reference point, we base most of what we know about Alexander the Great from documents that weren't written until 300 or 500 years after the time of his death. So Bible, 100 years, New Testament anyway, 100 years. Um, Alexander the Great, three to 500 years. Speaking of Alexander the Great, I want to show you something. I want to show you something here. But before we do, I invite you, before I show you this, I invite you to write this down. The best way to tell if the original content was accurately passed down from generation to generation is to compare the manuscript evidence. Let's take a look at why that matters. Okay, what I want to do right now is I want to show you how Jesus of Nazareth stacks up to other historical figures like Alexander the Great. When it comes to Alexander the Great, Despite living only 33 years, our history books say Alexander conquered territory ranging from Greece to India to Egypt. Now, where does the source material come from for something that astounding and that hard to believe? Well, according to the book that I referenced earlier, there's only two fragments two fragments of manuscript evidence that can be dated within 100 years of Alexander the Great's life. So let's say these two pieces of paper represent the two fragments, not even complete documents. So I should probably do this. So we got two fragments here. And these two fragments represent the manuscript evidence within 100 years of Alexander's life, the great's life that we have. So that's Alexander the Great. Now, let's look at the manuscript evidence for another 33-year-old. Did you know that there are 20 to 25,000 ancient manuscript copies of, of the entire New Testament? So that's what we have here. This is, these are ancient copies of the entire New Testament. So here's Alexander the Great. Here's Jesus of Nazareth. And if that's not enough, listen to this. There are also more than one million New Testament quotations from other ancient documents that testify to these manuscripts. One million. So if each one of these boxes holds 5,000 sheets of paper, how many more boxes would we need? to represent the fragments and the whole New Testament. We need 200 more boxes, 200 more boxes. As I said, the Bible is not just best in class. The Bible is in a class all by itself. Can I get an amen to that? 
Amen. Amen. All right. And here's why this matters. Here's why this matters. Let's pretend that you ascribe to that telephone game theory about Jesus, where you believe that, that Jesus was a real person and that over time that Jesus, the real person became Jesus, the real great teacher. And then over time, Jesus, the great teacher became Jesus, the miracle worker. And over time, Jesus, the miracle worker became this person who, who had made such an impact that even after his life, people still kind of felt his presence among them. And then let's pretend that you thought that that became, he rose from the dead and appeared to people. If that's something you subscribe to, how do you fact check that theory? Well, what you do is you look at the manuscript evidence. And did the older manuscripts have one version of Jesus that evolved and became something different later? Well, you know what the evidence shows? The evidence shows the opposite. The old documents testify to the same Jesus that the new documents testify to. And the same is true with the Old Testament as well. When you compare the oldest manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament to the newest ones, the Red Sea doesn't get any deeper and the giant Goliath doesn't get any taller. The hard evidence, the physical manuscript evidence supports the belief that what was written back then was accurately passed down. Now, are there discrepancies between the documents? Absolutely. There's, there's a whole lot of them. And one of the reasons that we recommend a great study Bible is if you look at the great study Bible, it can show you, hey, this is a little bit different in this manuscript than it was in this one. You can see where they agree and you can see where they don't. But here's the bottom line. If you choose to trust the testimony that we have in the Bible, you aren't placing your faith in what one man said about a book that fell from heaven and these gold tablets that he received, you know, as is the case for the Book of Mormon. Or you're not putting your faith in one man who claimed that he got his words from an angel, as is the case with the Quran. If you choose to place your faith in the Bible, you are placing your faith in one of the most, not one of the, in the most, thoroughly vetted collection of documents in the history of the world. These witnesses are as credible as ancient witnesses get, and the physical manuscript evidence supports the belief that their testimonies were accurately passed down from generation to generation to generation. And as I transition back now to my teaching chair, think about this question. What if just one of these testimonies is true. In a world as broken and divided as ours, in a world filled with so many unknowns, in a world where one of life's few certainties is our mortality, in a world like ours, we have a book filled with good news. We have guidance from a good God who knows you, who cares about you, and who wants to lead you home. Today, we're going to commemorate a real event that's at the center of the good news. These words are from 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 3. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
and then appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood can inherit the kingdom of God. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not sleep, but we shall be changed. And look at that. The word all is in there. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Boy, voices like these, voices like Paul's, the, the voice that I just read here, they testify to the same thing that we testify here at Emmanuel, that these words aren't just like other words, that these words are the word of God. And when we look to the Bible for guidance, it's not in vain. We believe these words to be true. Words like these from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For hundreds and hundreds of years, followers of Jesus have been taking a piece of bread and they've taken a cup and they participated in a moment that commemorates this event. It's a way to remember what Jesus did. It's a way to proclaim his death until he comes. And it's a way to say, today I'm saying yes. I'm saying yes to the good news that if I turn to God instead of going my own way, he's gonna continue to welcome me home as his son, as his daughter. There's so much that the Bible doesn't say about this sacrament. It doesn't give a specific age. It doesn't give a specific method. It doesn't prescribe a specific type of bread or type of wine. But there is something that the Bible does say. And this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 28. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood and body of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. With a show of hands, how many of you would say that the world would be a better place if we would examine ourselves more? Again, every hand in this room is up. So we're going to do that together. If you can pray these prayers that we're about to pray with sincerity, if you can examine yourself and come to the point where you say, God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. 
then we welcome you to join us at the Lord's table today. Um, if you'd like at least a little guidance, if you're, you're new to how you can do this at home or if you're doing this in a small church or with a small group of people, here's a simple way to administer the sacrament. Have a person take the bread that you have, break off a little piece and give it to you saying, this is the body of Christ given for you. And then take the, the cup that you have with your juice, your wine, you could dip the bread into there as the words are said, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And again, don't, don't worry about getting the words perfect. Don't worry. There's not, a, there's not one ritual here that if you like magic and if you don't get exactly right, then it doesn't work. The main thing is that it's real, that it's sincere, that we're coming before God honestly and looking to him for his grace and his forgiveness and his support. And as we do that, as you do that, remember there is a good father who's welcoming you home. All right, let's prepare ourselves for this moment now. Please join me and I'd invite you at home here, pray these prayers out loud with me. One of the things that, that I miss is, is when we say these words, to be saying them and hearing these voices around us saying these together because we are all in this together. So as you do that, as you say these words, know that there's others who are saying them with you right now. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And we're not worthy for these gifts which we're about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. Father, I pray right now that we could have a moment that you would open our minds and our hearts to the reality that your people have been saying similar words like this, praying similar prayers like this, for hundreds and hundreds of years on, in just about every set of circumstance on, on every continent all around your world. Father, I pray now that even though these are things that we've done together as your people, I pray right now you could help this to become personal for each individual that's been a part of this service. Bring to mind the specific things, Father, that you would have us to bring before you not only, and Father, not, not only um, the things where we've sinned against you, but Father, bringing our hurts and our hopes and our dreams, knowing that you are a good Father and knowing that people who are credible have testified to that fact. So now, Father, we, we join in words that were passed down to us by disciples of you. And we are, unite our voices around a prayer that you taught your disciples to pray and that, that they wrote down and, uh, and passed along to us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.